having a commitment to democracy doesn't mean we don't have institutions. Like we still want some, you know, majority rule. You still want checks and balances. Uh, but it does mean that we want to look for more ways to actually bring the people who are most affected into decision-making bodies. doesn't mean we get rid of these institutions necessarily, but they would operate really differently, I think, if you actually had you know, people whose lived experience looks more like the people in our country in these positions of power. From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Today, guys, we are going to be talking about some of the ways that COVID-19 has exacerbated some longstanding inequalities in our society and some ideas for what we can do to, to remedy those situations in, in light of our, our current situation. Uh, our guest for this is really on the, the front lines of this and on several fronts. Sabil Rahman is the president of Demos, so he works with a lot of people uh, on the ground doing this work to, to advocate for underrepresented groups of, of various types. He's also the author of a new book called Civic Power, uh, Rebuilding American Democracy in an Era of Crisis. He, he really has some, some interesting ideas about some of these, these inequalities. And I think and we should maybe just set the stage by expanding a little bit on, on what some of those inequalities are. So the, the book was written before the, uh, the crisis, but I think Demos and a lot of other um, organizations on the left would argue that the crisis hasn't so much changed the dynamics or created new uh, sources of inequality so much as revealed the existing ones. And, and the one point that is pretty hard to argue against that is the uh, rates of infection and death among different populations, especially African-Americans. In just about every major metropolitan area, you see these much higher rates in poor African-American communities than in the wealthy and predominantly white uh, neighborhoods. Yeah, well, there's, there's no doubt that the coronavirus has exposed the kinds of pre-existing health disparities that existed within American society. But it also, I think, has us thinking about some, I don't know, almost different kinds of classes in American life, or at least driving home divisions that we weren't maybe so clear about. So I'm thinking, for example, of the difference between people like us, who are quite privileged right now, mm -hmm. uh, and have just been able to shift our work to home. Right. You know, right. As opposed to people who have been unable to do that and who therefore find themselves in really some dire economic situations and a very grim future. That difference was always there, but somehow it seems much clearer now. We also have now this whole new class of people called the essentials who are responsible for being out there on the front line of the coronavirus. They have no choice about it because their work has been deemed essential. These are not only health workers, by the way. These are people who are keeping mass transit systems functioning, who are first responders of various yeah. types, who work in grocery stores. Right. I mm -hmm. think that the argument would be that these aren't, I mean, yes, what we're deeming essential, um, you know, healthcare aside, what we have deemed essential are people who are needed in this context to keep the economy going. And almost invariably, those people are middle class or below. Yeah, or not only just to keep the economy going, to keep 
to, life to allow the rest of us to stay in our homes. Right, exactly. Yeah, so you know, thinking about an organization like Demos and our guests that are, are coming up, you know, what strikes me about this moment is there, there are, how do I put this? First of all, this is the kind of situation that leads to political change, right? It, it, it is hard for me to picture that politics is gonna be exactly the same after this as it was before. This is just too big. And, and, and not just structurally, but likely ideologically as well. Is oh, that what abso- you're saying? Because that's what I would say. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it could go in either direction, quite frankly. And I right. think we're seeing that around the world. I think on the one hand, there could be quite a bit of energy on the left. You know, the kinds of divisions that we were talking about before, the kind of uh, highlighting of the role of the essentials, right. you know, for example, the kind of inequalities that are going to be that are being clearly exposed could lead to energy on the left when and if all this actually comes to an end. On the other hand, it can also provide the fuel for populist movements on the right. I want to give Sabil his his due. And I appreciate the point that this is an opportunity Again, the the cage has been shook. However, I just am very much aware of the difficulties associated with with any kind of traditional organizing, community organizing in this kind of context. And so I'll be interested to hear how he addresses that reality. We have laid the stage here for some of the issues that Sabil and his colleagues are thinking about. So let's go now to the interview. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Sabil Rahman. Sabil, thank you so much for joining us on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me, Jenna. So excited to talk with you uh, about your new book, Civic Power, and some of the arguments you make there. But I wanted to start with a couple of COVID-19 related things. Um, We've been in a a series here on the show looking at different ways that the coronavirus has impacted democracy. And, you know, in in many ways, it seems that COVID-19 has exacerbated or, or brought to bear the issues of racial and economic inequality that, that Demos focuses on in its work. We're seeing um, you know, higher death rates and exposure rates in, in communities of color. The uh, economic downturn has, has brought to bear so many issues of, of economic inequality. And I'm just wondering, in, in light of all this, how has the organization shifted its focus or, or you know, how are you thinking about COVID-19 in, in relationship to the work that you do? I appreciate that, Jenna. Uh, so, you know, for folks who may not be aware of Demos's work, Demos is a think and do tank focused on issues of racial equity, democracy, and inequality. And as you mentioned in your comment, Jenna, this virus is when it first became a, a big crisis. A lot of people were talking about how, oh, well, you know, viruses are the great. It's a great equalizer. Everybody's affected. Everybody's at risk. But of course, you know, if a, viruses may not discriminate across humans, but people and policies do. And the reality is that what we see with the impact of COVID-19 is that it layers on top of those systemic racial and economic inequities that are already deeply baked in to our cities, into our economy, into our politics. This virus is actually amping up and, and even further weaponizing those disparities of who's actually able to vote, who's able to access quality health care. Uh, who's able to even live healthy lives where you are less at risk from air pollution or asthma rates or you know the kind of underlying 
conditions that make you even more vulnerable to the to the crisis. Right. So, so how do you both, you know, deal with those very real, very day to day kind of risks that that we've been talking about, but also like at the same time push for bigger structural reforms? What what does that balance look like both right now, and then how do you see that kind of playing out moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. And for, for in our work at Demos, you know, we actually see the fights around the pandemic and the now economic crisis that's coming as a result of the pandemic, as really closely tied to these longer-term structural questions. They're not really two separate fights. So, for example, we, uh, working with a bunch of other partners, had brought a lawsuit in Florida in advance of the March 17th primary, and we're bringing other legal actions in a few key states to try to prod state governments to adopt vote-by-mail and, and other policy protections. On the economic crisis side, it's a similar thing. The urgent needs that people have now that we're up to you know, tens of millions of uh, Americans unemployed. This is, we've never had such a severe unemployment crisis, not even at the height of the Great Depression. And so the immediate need to get cash and supports for families, for small businesses, that's actually bound up in addressing some of these deeper structural questions. So yes, we need cash for families, but we also need, for example, debt relief, right? Because people can't make their student debt payments or their consumer debt payments when everybody's losing their jobs and when you're not even sure how you're going to make rent next month. So the structural questions are actually all coming to the fore now in the midst of this pandemic. And so I think for folks who are paying attention to the policy fights in Washington, I really think it's important to see this as a one-two punch, that we need to put as much big structural change into the recovery packages that Congress is considering because people need that relief now. And we need to also make sure that we continue to keep the drumbeat going to make sure there's more further reform that happens to our economy uh, in November and in January if there's a new administration. Right. And and so what does it look like to keep that drumbeat going at this time when we're all sheltering in place and, and living so much of our lives virtually? I mean, there are no congressional staffers in the office to call. You can't get together to demonstrate a lot of these, like what we think of as traditional ways of organizing or for, for pushing for change. Um, so how is, is Demos handling that side of, of this, this coronavirus crisis? Yeah, so we work really closely with a lot of grassroots organizations who who do the on-the-ground organizing. And as you mentioned, you know, one of the big shifts that, that is needed in this moment, right, is that figuring out new strategies and tactics for online organizing, for creating digital spaces that model or, or mimic how you might do a, a physical in-person rally or building those instead of knocking on doors, uh, how we use, you know, teletown halls or other forms of digital organizing to try to build out that people power, that grassroots force that is needed to drive these conversations. So we work really closely with partners in the states, uh, at the national level. Uh, There are a lot of groups that are uh, doing really interesting, creative forms of organizing in this moment. And also note that, you know, we're not all living virtually, right? There's so much uh, danger that is inherent in, for example, when you think of uh, the essential workers who are keeping us all alive, right? The uh, delivery workers, grocery store, food preparation workers, uh, healthcare workers. And we're actually seeing an enormous increase in organizing and activism among workers who are in these frontline industries. Uh, Amazon workers here in New York uh, went on strike in one of the warehouse, key warehouses a few weeks ago. 
folks may have heard about the Instacart strike, uh, for example, the, the severity of this crisis, I think, is also driving a lot more people to engage in different ways. And that actually is an important thing to build off of in this moment. Right. And that actually ties into uh, one of the, the main themes in civic power, which is that for a long time, that the communities that, that you've just been describing have been left out of the the reform process out of organizing. I, mean, I even just did it there, right? Thinking about how, you know, there's this one group, the only people who are organizing, who are contacting their, their legislators, who are getting out in the streets are largely upper middle class white people of varying age group. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's such an important point because I think for a lot of folks who are you know tuning into these issues for the first time, we you know we might have a stylized image of uh, what we think civic engagement looks like. You know, it's uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, you knock on your representative's door and you know all of that is is true, but you know we do a lot of work for example in working in particular with black and brown communities, groups that are organizing in communities of color you know, knocking on doors and, and organizing those frontline constituencies. And one of the things that is uh, so clear is racial inequity shows up across the board. So it's not just in our policies or it's not just in the different disparate impact of the pandemic. You also see it in from an organizing standpoint that uh, black and brown organizations, black and brown communities often don't have the same seat at the table as other constituencies that are able to organize. And some of that has to do with resources, right? Uh, you know, it takes money to fund civil society organizations so that you can have organizers and canvassers to go out and knock on doors. Um, some of that has to do with policy. So, you know, we're going into a sort of repeat of the Great Depression. It's important to remember that the New Deal, as important as it was in the 30s, also deliberately cut key industries out of the social contract that came out of that moment. And these were industries that were predominantly women workers, predominantly black and brown workers. So domestic workers were exempt from the labor laws that were passed in the New Deal. Uh, So were farm workers. So were guest workers. And actually, when you look at those industries now, those are the industries where you're seeing some of the most important, energetic, exciting new forms of organizing. It's among these workers who have been cut out of the 20th century safety net often because of race and gender. But these are the workers who, as a result of that, have been the most precarious, the most at risk, and are now, uh, over the last few years, have been innovating all kinds of new ways of, of organizing. Right. And, you know, as as I think about kind of the, the democracy reform movement, we've had plenty of, of folks on the show from varying organizations. It's It's never, I don't think, intentional. I mean, people don't kind of set out to, to say, no, we want to ex- exclude these people. Um, but but I think you, you hit on something in the book that I think kind of maybe summarizes a lot of how it happens anyway, and that's the uh, good governance ethos. Yeah. Can you explain what that is? Yeah, sure. So uh, one of the big arguments uh, my co-author, Holly Russell-Gilman, and I try to make in Civic Power is that there's actually a problem within the democracy reform world itself that risks magnifying these disparities along racial, gender, and structural economic lines. So I think for a lot of people who are, especially in kind of the wonk world, and and you know I'm a law professor, uh, academic by background in sort of the academic world too, I think we often think of democracy reform in an anti-corruption good governance frame. And by that, what I mean is 
We want government to be expert, to be transparent, to be responsive, to solve our problems in a smart, effective way. It's kind of a, a neutral, almost technocratic view of what good government is, right? It's We don't want government to be corrupt. We want it to be based on sound information and competent bureaucrats. And you know, I'm not saying that, that we don't want expertise or, or an effective bureaucracy, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I think a good governance way of thinking about democracy reform doesn't actually have a whole lot to say about structural disparities of power or about structural exclusion, right? You could have an effective, you know, quote unquote, good government that still leaves in place a lot of these historical and systemic inequities. But it seems to me that what we really ought to want out of democracy reform is not just sort of more expert, sane governance, although that sounds really nice right about now. What we actually want is we want a democracy that is itself much more reflective and responsive for the most marginalized, the most affected communities. And so that means thinking about how race, how economic inequality, how gender play into our, our mental image of what democracy reform requires. If we're not actually putting the people who are most affected in positions of power and control and influence over our policy, then I, I would argue we're not actually improving our democracy. Right. And I want to come back to how we we get those those people, those voices at, at the table. But um, before we do, you, you also spend some time in the book talking about kind of the the external threats to democracy that that people in the, the wonk world, as you just just described it, are kind of be become obsessed with the, you know, threat from from authoritarianism, the kind of how democracies die model. I know you, you cite that in civic power as well. And I'm just wondering, like, as these kind of external forces seem to be becoming stronger, or at least people kind of perceive them that way. Do you see these kind of civil society groups turning or or leaning more on this good governance ethos? Because the, the chaos coming out of Washington under this administration is so severe, I do think that there is a strong temptation or desire among a lot of folks to just make the chaos end. Let's just go back to let's just return to normal, right? And you could argue that this was a lot of the premise uh, of Joe Biden's primary campaign, for example. And I think that, you know, there's, that has a strong appeal in the Trump era, but I think that that is actually kind of a dangerous path if we care about deep democracy uh, from a racial equity standpoint, because of course, the good old days of 2014 or even 1990 or even 1950 were not actually very good for black and brown people. And so this idea that, well, all we need to do is just turn the volume back down, go back to a pre-Trump mode of governance is actually not a good North Star, I don't think, for what we want to get out of this moment. Uh, That's the first challenge. I think there's a second challenge, though, um, when you talk about the kind of what's happening externally and sort of in other parts of the world, the, the rise of authoritarianism. I do think there's a lot that we can and should learn from comparisons across countries. But one thing that I worry a little bit about is people try to make analogies between what's happening, say, in Brazil uh, and what's happening in the U.S. is that, look, you know, the risk of autocracy is not something that is new or alien to American politics. We have our own homegrown tradition of autocracy, and that is Jim Crow, right? And that is the Confederacy. We have a constitution that was premised on an original sin of, you know, cutting a deal with the slave South. And all of this is baked into American history. So this idea that we were a democracy and then suddenly 
2016 came around and now suddenly we're at risk of no longer being a democracy, I think is really misleading. What is more accurate is that we've actually had pockets of democracy, especially for wealthier and whiter communities, and pockets of autocracy, especially for communities of color. When you think about, for example, you know, mass incarceration and structural racism. And so for me, that is both a bigger challenge and in a way, uh, a bit more hopeful. It's a bigger challenge in the sense that, you know, the demons are right here at home that we have to get away from. The hopefulness is that we have a tradition, too, of deep commitment to inclusive, equitable democracy that many movements and uh, leaders have been trying to fight for many decades to try to expand American democracy's promise to everybody. And that's really how I see the, the challenge of these next few years. It seems like there's, as as you were just saying, that people kind of come down on on one side of the aisle or or the other, uh, right? And and yeah. so, what's an appropriate balance in your mind and and in in your organization's mind to to the extent that they're different between liberalism in and democracy, or, or where does liberalism fit in in your mind? I think in terms of navigating, you know, the two sides of this question, the good governance side and the genuine democracy side. This is a big part of Demos's work. And we, you know, we are a think tank, but we, are, we also we think of ourselves as a think tank of the movement, by which we mean we are you know, using the traditional tools of a think tank, you know, policy, research, media, etc., but doing it in very close and deep partnership with grassroots organizations who are working with folks on the ground, especially folks on, in frontline communities. And so we are you know, co-creating policy ideas. We are really trying to make sure that our, the policy solutions that we're offering are directly responsive to and building on the insights of the most affected communities on the ground. And so in terms of like living into the value of democracy, you know, it doesn't mean we don't need certain kinds of expertise, but it's a different way of situating expertise and policy work in service of communities themselves. The second thing I'd say, just which is a bit more theoretical about your question about liberalism versus democracy, you know, this is a deep tension that goes all the way back. In a lot of ways, uh, if we think of liberalism as a political ideology that is uh, partly premised on a kind of moderation from any type of extreme, there's a fear baked into liberalism of both autocratic politics and of kind of raw plebiscitarian democratic politics. But I always found the opposition of liberalism and democracy a little bit confusing myself because in a lot of ways, right, what you actually want isn't just sort of rule by public opinion, right? Any good democracy actually requires institutions to structure political conflict, make political debate productive, make it so that if we choose the wrong policy at one time, we can still come back and fix it down the line. And so having a commitment to democracy doesn't mean we don't have institutions, like we still want some, you know, majority rule, you still want checks and balances. Uh, But it does mean that we want to look for more ways to actually bring the people who are most affected into decision making bodies. So to give a concrete example, as a lawyer, we spent a lot of time thinking about the Supreme Court. And, you know, it always has baffled me why, why is it that we should have so much power in an institution that is nine unelected individuals who are so vastly unrepresentative of the country in terms of race, gender, social class, occupational uh, and educational experience, right? But what would it look like if you actually had 
a genuinely reflective and diverse judiciary or a genuinely and reflective and diverse bureaucracy, right? It doesn't mean we get rid of these institutions necessarily, but they would operate really differently, I think, if you actually add you know, people whose lived experience looks more like the people in our country in these positions of power. To that point of bringing, making the organizations look more like the people that they represent, there is an organization uh, you cite in the book out of Boston, I think, that has has done this. Can you talk more about what that looks like? Yeah, so we we give a couple of examples in the book, uh, mostly city-based examples where you actually see, I think, a lot more experimentation around different approaches to democratic institutions. We give a couple of examples of what this might look like. So some examples are of cities uh, like Boston and others that have tried to create public agencies, city agencies, whose whole job is actually to create deeper relationships and do outreach uh, and engagement with frontline communities to sort of proactively be building more of a pipeline between you know, folks on the ground who tend to be overlooked or cut out of governmental decision-making to actually bring those voices in to, you know, decisions around uh, zoning, around school boards, around participatory budgeting. Like these are real decisions that actually have real dollars and policy stakes. And what's so interesting to me about it is, you know, it's one thing to have a town hall or a notice and comment procedure where you get a lot of input from the community. First of all, you know, who's likely to show up to those? Uh, It tends to be wealthier and whiter constituents. Uh, Second of all, those comments don't really have a lot of force necessarily because uh, policymakers and decision makers can still basically have discretion to do whatever they want. But you contrast that to some of these examples that we gave around um, participatory budgeting and engagement around urban policy, urban planning, where you actually see representatives from labor, from black and brown communities being brought into commissions that are then making decisions or overseeing the enforcement of policies around, say, big major urban development projects and so forth. And so we're not saying that these are like the silver bullet, but the point is just to say that, you know, a lot of times when you talk about, well, we need more democracy, people often throw up their hands and they say, oh, well, it's too complicated. It doesn't work, right? Um, uh, it's it just it's it's not feasible, and our yeah, point too is that slow, that's takes yeah, too, long. too slow. It takes too long, too messy, right? Whatever you could you could just the list of complaints is it comes so easily to mind. But in the book, one of the points we wanted to make is that actually none of those counter arguments really hold a lot of water. That actually there are plenty of examples to draw on. The real issue isn't that it doesn't work. It's just that we really, as a country, haven't really tried very hard to create the, these types of participatory institutions. The last thing I, I want to touch on, you know, you were talking about participatory budgeting and, and some of these these organizations and some of these ways that folks are trying to to make some of these democratic processes more more inclusive. But you draw a distinction between that and what we think of as deliberative democracy or creating mini publics. Can you just talk about what that distinction is and, and why deliberative democracy as it's conceived doesn't always hit the inclusion notes that its organizers often hope that it would. Yeah, yeah. So um, this is a variation, I think, on the good governance critique. So I think a lot of times, especially for people coming out of the democracy reform uh, and the democratic theory uh, world, there's a, an attraction to the idea of deliberative democracy, you know, where 
you know, you create spaces for more conversation, to create more consensus and shared understanding among the people participating. And and uh, the value of it is that it seems to allow for more nuance than, say, either raw public opinion polling or or voting or other uh, decision rules. I think there's a, an important role for that kind of uh, conversation and deliberation for sure. But what I think a lot of the deliberative democracy uh, proposals often tend to miss is that real inclusion and equity also means recognizing that there's disagreement and that there's actually going to be conflict and that that's okay. The point of democratic institutions isn't to erase conflict or disagreement or disparities of power, but it's actually to channel disagreements in ways that are productive. So we don't get very far by running on a consensus model. What you actually want to do is make sure that you're giving voice to the really uh, deep disagreements that, that are going to arise, especially when you, we try to tackle some of these structural questions around race, around inequality, around gender. And the other thing I'd say, too, is that a lot of times in politics, there isn't a win-win solution, right? Someone will actually have to lose something, and that that's okay and probably even necessary, right? If, we're, if we take inequality, for example, like whether your preferred solution is a wealth tax or a financial transaction tax or um, or, you know, pick your solution, that's not a win-win, right? There are people who have a lot of money who probably have more than they should and who are going to have less if the policy goes forward. The goal isn't to deliberate uh, necessarily and like kind of convince the top 1% that they should agree to this idea, though, of course, if they agree, that would be lovely. But I think uh, uh, the real point of a democracy is to make it so that that top 1% doesn't have such a veto power over everybody else that they can block a set of policy that might be bad for them, but is actually really good for everybody else. Thinking about how we make sure that even in this crisis moment, the campaigns and the policies and the ideas that we're putting forward actually builds up more grassroots strength so that next election and the election after that, we are actually have more people power in black and brown communities. And it's not treating every election as a one-off, uh, but actually has a kind of ongoing process of organizing and building civic power. We will link to your book in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jenna. And thanks for this space that y'all are curating. It's really great. Hey, Democracy Works listeners, Mila Atmos from Future Hindsight here. We are one of Jenna's partner shows on the Democracy Group with a focus on interviews with citizen changemakers to spark civic engagement. We are starting an all-new season on May 15th on how misinformation in politics and the media affect democracy, and we'd love for you to listen. Here's a sneak peek of our first episode with Lee McIntyre of the Center for Philosophy and History of Science at Boston University. I define post-truth as the political subordination of reality. I think that it's a tactic that authoritarians and their wannabes use to corrupt our belief, not just in specific truths, but in the idea that we have a way to pursue truth outside a political context. So I don't think it's really a failing of knowledge so much as one of politics. Listen on futurehindsight.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Sabil is arguing that 
there is this structural inequality that is long present in American social life, and that's pretty much unassailable. You could argue that it's gotten better, but it's still there, and it's long been there in our history. And he's saying the work of Demos is to try to figure out new ways to connect these disconnected populations to politics. The key thing is what they're trying to do has been a goal of those on the left for a long time. And that is to try to bring together working people without dividing them along racial lines. Well, and I think it's something that we should be keeping in mind because as states seek to reopen and as the federal government tries very intentionally to shift attention away from the virus itself and the response to it towards opening up to the economy, there is sort of an acceptance that the people that are most likely to suffer from this are most likely to be poor and minority. Yeah. One of the things he argues about is that many of the uh, strategies that are currently associated with organizing these underserved communities is a participatory democracy model. And these are the kind of models that the McCourtney Institute funds students to go and work for these organizations. It's the Nevins program. It's extremely successful. Students love it. But he's, he's right in that it is extremely difficult to connect those organizations and their very good work to politics properly understood. They don't yeah, which scale. Is- they, don't, they don't allow for coalitions. And so you don't end up with a group that has political power. Properly. Well, and, and of course, part of his point, I, I believe, is that, you know, politics is about conflict. Right. And, and a lot of these participatory democracy models- um, Yeah, sort of focus on- Yeah, and deliberative democracy too, that, that a, and it may not be a fair characterization of deliberative democracy, but people often characterize it as a search for consensus. And, uh, you know, I hear this talked about with the coronavirus as well. You know, we all ought to just get together and figure out how to solve this thing. And it's it's not going to work that way. It's about politics. It's about power. It's about that they're going to be winners and they're going to be losers. And so much has changed, which means everyone has a stake in what amounts to the new status quo, right? It's one thing when you're kind of moving along and you have people who are kind of doing fine and your issue is with those who are not served. But right now, everybody has a stake in what's going to happen. And so the prospects for moving beyond politics or for politics being anything but this fight between competing interests is just genuinely impossible, right? Right. If that happens, if it were to happen that there was no conflict, it would mean that the conflict that was genuinely there had been shut down. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think he ma- he makes an important part. He, he says, if we take inequality, for example, whether your preferred solution is a wealth tax, a financial transaction tax, pick your solution. That's not a win-win. They're going to be winners and they're going to be losers coming right. out of this. It's going to be right. fierce political struggle. And, you know, and I really do think that the left is at a disadvantage right now. And for who knows how long, because they can't organize. And organizing virtually is not the same thing. He talks about Milwaukee. I lived there for many, many years and a number of efforts associated with work in the inner city, working you know, in the central city of Milwaukee. And it's, it's absolutely true 
that Milwaukee is one of the most racially segregated cities in the country and that there are huge wealth disparities. It's not like the left doesn't know that. It's not like the left hasn't tried to do something about that. But it is extremely difficult to organize people who have been organized before and who have been promised these things and then people have failed to deliver, people who do develop skills in the inner city as a result of these organizing, they move to better neighborhoods because now they have these skills. Funders lose interest and then they start doing something else. It is just very difficult. And the one thing he said that really resonated with with me was he said, we should have people from these communities organizing and running for office at the DA level or the secretary of state or other offices that have power that are being ignored by people. And another way of looking at that is (laughs) the Republican Party understood this extremely well. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, they had a strategy of running school board candidates, running right. state legislative candidates, and they have had tremendous political payoff from doing that. The left has always been focused much more on the national level. I think that's been a mistake, but you know, the expectation has always been that you know, big kinds of social programs are going to come out of the national government, not out of the states. You have to build a movement, and that means you have to uh, start with local elected office, and then you move up. And that's why you hear it repeated ad nauseum that the Republicans always have a bench and the Democrats don't because the Republicans filled these local offices and then were able to move into higher office. Yeah, but we're getting into some nitty gritty. I mean, I think one takeaway from all this today is that uh, things are going to be different when we come out of this. A lot has been exposed. A lot of people are hurting that might not have been previously. On the other hand, politics are really disrupted, and we don't really know how long that's going to go on for. But yeah. but it's also true that every crisis is an opportunity. Somebody is thinking about this and figuring out how to use social media or how to organize people in a different way. And the person who's successful at that is going to be successful in politics. Well, so really interesting. Deimos, I I knew them way back when, when I was in philanthropy. They're well-respected, do good work. And kudos to to Sabil for coming on and, and sharing his views. Thanks to Jennifer for the interview. And thank you all for listening. I'm Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Episodes are engineered by Andy Grant and Craig Johnson, edited by Chris Kugler, Jen Bortz, and Mark Stitzer, and reviewed by Emily Reddy. Our interns this semester are Nicole Grayson and Stephanie Crane, two seniors in the Donald P. Belisario College of Communications at Penn State. Democracy Works is part of the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts all about civic engagement, civil discourse, and democracy. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about our member shows and access deep dive playlists on topics like gerrymandering and money in politics that are curated from across the network. If you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in your podcast app. 
Thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.